It is my great joy this morning to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious Word to Exodus chapter 30. We're going to look at Exodus 30 verse 11 down through chapter 31 verse 18 together this morning as we continue to study through the book of Exodus. But to begin our time together this morning, what I want to do is to read out of Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through chapter 12, verse 8. And so I want to invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and My burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to Him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, or for those who were with him, but only for the priest?" Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we live in a fallen and restless world. In our own struggle, Lord, we are so often restless people. But Lord, we pray that today You would help guide our thoughts. That You would help direct our minds to the only real rest that really exist. To rest that is eternal. To rest that is as sure as the fact that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord. O Lord, teach us and change us according to the truth of Your Word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I love pictures. I love the ability of pictures to carry your thoughts, to carry your mind to another place. To think about places you've been or to consider places you might be 
going. So one of the ways we use pictures is retrospectively. We, we look back. There are pictures that I treasure. Pictures of uh, my children, the day they were born, the first time that they were held. Pictures of some of the first times I was with Judy. There are pictures like that that, that I hold dear that remind me of the path that God has taken me. Now, I, I've known people who have had pictures that they keep in a specific place so they see all the time that remind them not of good things, but that remind them of who they were in the past. And an ever-present reminder of their need of grace in the present, not to return to that place. But, but pictures are also used prospectively. You're going to consider going somewhere. You're going to, to find pictures of it, to, to look at it, to imagine yourself being there. Let's say you're going to go on a vacation, and, and does that place look appealing? Uh, there are all kinds of ways we think about, uh, we're, we're thinking about buying a home, so we look at pictures before we ever show up there. Or a car, does that look like the kind of car that I would want to have? So, so pictures are valuable to us. But one thing is clear. Pictures are merely representations. They are not reality. In fact, pictures often leave you longing for the real thing that you're considering or thinking about. Pictures are valuable, but they are not enough. What we want, what we must have, is the real thing. I've been telling you that this history in the book of Exodus is told in such a way that it is purposely giving us these evocative pictures, these these moments in history that are to to, to help guide our thinking. We, We see a burning bush with the very voice of God coming out of it, and one man is there. And then we see God delivering a people through the parting of waters that are walled up. And then the mighty fighting force, the strongest army of the world that day, washed up in those waters when they try to cross. And then that one man ends up being a redeemed people and on Mount Sinai. And and on the top of it, there there is Moses who goes and, and meets with God on behalf of the people. And now the people are a nation. These These pictures are powerful. And now we're in the midst of a picture that it's painting for us that we tend to kind of want to gloss over. But in reality, this is where all of this has been heading. This picture of the tabernacle and all of the details associated with the tabernacle and how you interact within the tabernacle and where you can go and how you get there. This, this picture of God committing Himself to dwell with His people. God tabernacling among them. God taking up residence with the midst of this people. God's presence in this way that is greater than they had known in the other ways God had made Himself known and His presence clear in this tabernacle. I'll remind you that Moses has been on this extended conversation with God, he went up the mountain and sort of disappeared. He's going to be there 40 days and 40 nights, but the people down at the bottom are 
are, are, are wondering what in the world has happened, and we see that there are questions about uh, Moses and considering, well, he's probably dead, and so they just decide to move on very quickly, and uh, they uh, decide we need something to worship, and we'll see that next time. But this, from chapter, the end of chapter 24 to what we're looking at today is this, this entire telling of what God is communicating to Moses about the tabernacle. It is significant. We must think about these things, not just simply in a superficial way, but we must ask ourselves, why does God take the time to communicate to us in this way with so much detail? To say thunderously that He is determined, He is relentless to be present among His people. The people whom He has redeemed and that He is the holy, holy God. We're coming to the end of that time. Moses is going to head back down the mountain after what we look at today. But we have these final few pictures that we are to, to see and to learn from. And, and the first one uh, I want to point, direct you to is chapter 30, verses 11 through uh, 38. And, and the, this is, points us to the reality of holy presence. Now you say, well, you've said that again and again. Correct. Because the entire tabernacle structure and its reality among the people is primarily communicating God's holy presence among them. But it communicates it in all kinds of ways. The repetition of that theme is not getting in the way of our understanding. It's the point. The point is that we would not miss it. God is holy, 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 and yet He determines to dwell among this people who are sinful. A people whom He has chosen by nothing but His grace to redeem. And the themes that flow up from God's commitment to display His holy presence are very important. Look with me at the first one in verses 11 through 16. There is a, a, a focus on redemption or atonement. Look at the first two verses of chapter 30, verses 11 and 12. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom, or the word couldn't be translated atonement, it means to redeem by a substitute. In other words, you give something for something. Each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Now, th this whole section is kind of odd, but a theme is here that uh, shows up in other places in the Bible, like Second Samuel 24, when David is going to do a census and Joab says, oh no, don't do that. That's not a good thing to do. We don't want to experience judgment. And David does it anyway and he reaps the negative consequences of doing it. There seems to be some sense in which a census is dangerous. 
But why? Uh, the, 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 the idea seems to be that um, the danger is that when we start counting, we tend to trust in numbers. And so God gives all these specific ways it has to be done. And the, 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 the idea is also that in, at this time that, that you only had the right to count what you owned. So if, if I showed up to your house and uh, you keep, I know you keep the money in a jar over here, you don't trust the bank, so all of your money's over there in a jar, and I sit down at the jar and take the top off and start counting your money in your house, you're going to be saying, what are you doing? You don't own that. Right? You only count what you own, and the dangers, the people are always guilty of drifting into thinking that they own this thing, that they are self sufficient. And God is communicating to them in powerful ways, and that's the whole point of this entire flow of the section we're looking at today is this you are totally dependent upon God and His grace. And if you don't understand it, and if you don't believe it, and if you don't acknowledge it, there are consequences. And so there's this warning that, oh no, at this time of census, that there could be plague. So God makes a way for them to do this where they give a ransom. And it's a particular amount of money. It it is a, a shekel. It's about a day's wage. And that serves as a ransom for them, an atonement for them, it's going to say later to avert any wrath that may come. Then look down at verse 15 of Exodus 30. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less. In other words, all have the same need, and the price that has to be paid for all is the same. He says, when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. Verse 16. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord, so as to make atonement for your lives. Now we see the purpose of this census. If this tabernacle area is going to exist, if it's going to be carried around with the people, if God is going to dwell in here and He has to be approached in a certain way, then there has to be resources to help take care of this temple. And so the people give this money at the time of this census, and it goes to taking care of the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. So so embedded in this activity of census is the theme that we see throughout the Bible about atonement, that we need a substitute. And without a substitute, we are in trouble. But secondly, also cleansing. God's holy presence reminds the people of their need of cleansing. If you look with me at verses 17 through 21, I'm only going to read a couple of those verses, but it's a command that a basin of bronze shall be made, and that should be for washing of Aaron and his sons who become the priest. And, and bronze automatically tips you to remember that bronze would only be in the outer court area. Gold would be in the uh, inner court, in the Holy of Holies. And so this is the stuff that's more in the outer area, but it is because the priests have to 
constantly go through this ritual purification or this cleansing. And by the way, that's an important reminder for us as we think through these things. And that is, the reason they had to do that is because the priests were sinners. They too were guilty. The sacrifices that were offered had to be offered for them as well. And that's why when the book of Hebrews so powerfully declares that Jesus is our great high priest, as you heard read earlier in the service, that Jesus has fulfilled the priesthood. That there is no more need to offer these sacrifices. That those sacrifices would have never ended because the person offering them was always guilty. But Jesus comes and He is the high priest and the sacrifice Himself. But embedded in the history of this people is this understanding that they need to be cleansed. And the warnings are harsh. Look with me at verse 20 of Exodus chapter 30. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. Verse 21. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations, throughout the whole time of the priesthood until it comes to its culmination in Christ. That they may not die. God is holy. God is not to be trifled with. God was by His grace making a way for a sinful people to enter into His presence. And God was teaching about His character and why the people had such a need to come to Him and why these offerings were necessary. All of this is to say, whatever thought that you have ever had about God's holy perfection, it's inadequate. God is more holy and more perfect than your best thought of that that you've ever had about Him. But you see, it's teaching us that to teach us also the other side of that. God's determination to save a people, to pour out His grace, is greater than we've ever imagined. It is more precious and more glorious and more mind-boggling and more amazing than we can work into a song. It's more amazing than we've ever fathomed before in our lives. So built into this system and this structure that is to be built is a reminder not only of the need of redemption and atonement, but the need of cleansing. And then finally we see in this section here at the end from verses 22-38, through 38, uh, anointing and worship. Um, this is a, a, a section where uh, basically it's this. There are two recipes given. One is a recipe to make this anointing oil, and one is a recipe to make a particular type of incense. 
So the anointing oil, it says in verse 25, you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer, and it shall be a holy anointing oil. And so here you have not only the objects, but the priest are to be symbolically anointed with this special oil to say that all of this stuff is uniquely set apart for the worship of God. And then, for the incense, if you look down at verse 35 of chapter 30, and make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. Here's another recipe. Uh, Before it says that, it tells you all of the things that should be added to it here. But but the, the, the idea of incense is that this worship, with the hope is that this glorious smell, that, that this worship would be like that, that it would go up and be pleasing to God. Incense is also associated at times with constant prayers and, and intercession. But the issue here is clearly worship. That, that there has to be what is anointed and there has to be what is given over to God because we are worshiping God. But notice the warning. If you don't follow these recipes right, and if you use this on something else, here's what it says in verse 32 about the anointing oil. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds anything like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. Should be put out of the community. Chapter 30, verse 38 about the incense. Whoever makes any like it to use as a perfume shall be cut off from his people. Now, do you see the great pains? to teach this people that God has to be worshipped on His own terms, that we are in great need of redemption and atonement, that we are a people in need of cleansing, that we, that we need what is apart from us, what is set apart apart from us, what is devoted by God is what we need. We cannot come to this on our own terms. We must come to God on His terms. Oh, how that needs to be heard today. And all of the issues in our culture today, there are all kinds of inappropriate reactions for Christians. Some people lose sight of the Gospel in the midst of culture wars and just pick a side and don't even think about their faith as they contend, but probably the most dangerous thing that happens is when Christians start to accommodate the whims of culture in the name of God. He's telling us here, we cannot do that. And if we do, there are huge consequences. We must come to God on God's own terms. There is one way of salvation, the Bible tells us. And that is through conscious faith in Jesus Christ. And no matter what anybody else says, that is true. And we could go down an entire list of other issues. 
And as we stand for the truth of the Scripture in the midst of that, we do it with a view to the Gospel because we know apart from God's uh, grace in our lives, we are blind to the truth as well. But understand this, we must be a people, we are a people who are to exist, to be a testimony to God in the world. The very reason we exist is not just to fade into the background of the world, but so that the world would know Him. So our testimony would have the power upon it of a people that are committed to Him and willing to stand out in a fallen world. Well, we go from this final items that he's talking about in the midst of this context, and we go to a discussion in chapter 31, verses 1-11 through about spiritual gifts, or here, we would just put it this way, a spiritual gift a work of the Spirit here, but it makes us think about how God is at work among us, granting all believers spiritual gifts. Look with me at chapter 31, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, by the way, the last section I just read started that way, and it starts that way again and again, a total of seven times. Chapter 21, 25, verse 1. Chapter 30, verse 11. Chapter 30, verse 17. 30, 22. 30, uh, 34. And here we have 31, verse 1 is the sixth time. The next time is going to be the seventh time. So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Belzeel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. By the way, that's the first time in the Bible you have this language about being filled with the Spirit of God. Here it's for a particular purpose. In the context of the New Covenant, all believers are filled with the Spirit of God. But I filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. Now, now, what's he saying here? I have raised up a lead contractor for this building project of the tabernacle, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God for the task that is ahead of him. Now, this is fascinating. For all kinds of reasons. One of the reasons in all of this dialogue about the building of the tabernacle, the only names mentioned have been Moses, Aaron, and Aaron's sons. Moses, the prophetic mediator of the people. Aaron and his sons who are going to be the priests of the people. And now we get here this work project contractor. Elzio, the filled with the Spirit of God. But all of this starts out with that word, see. It's actually a, a way the Hebrew says, oh, pay special attention to this. This is a high point. Here we're getting to a climax. So the climax of this narrative is that God picked out a contractor, filled him with the Spirit, and gave him the gifts to be able to do this incredible job. That's the climax of all of this? Yeah. Kind of. When you understand what's going on here. Yeah. Now, 
I told you earlier, this is the sixth time it says the Lord said to Moses, and next time's the seventh. And in the seventh, it's going to talk to us next about the Sabbath. The Lord said to Moses, make six times and then take a Sabbath. That reminds you of something, doesn't it? At the very beginning of the Bible. And God said, and then there is an aspect of creation. And God said, and there's an aspect of creation. And God said, and there's an aspect of creation. And it comes down to the seventh day, and it says that on the seventh day, God rested. A Sabbath. Well, it gets even more fascinating when we understand that these these descriptors here about this particular just a craftsman, a workman guy, not a priest, not a prophet, not a teacher, not a preacher, a, a workman who is called, who is filled with the Spirit and is equipped for this task. With these words, when it says ability and intelligence and with knowledge, God gave him three, three words there to start with. And then there's a fourth I'll explain in a minute. But the, the word ability is most often translated wisdom. And intelligence, uh, often translated understanding. And then we have knowledge. So wisdom, understanding, and knowledge are ability, intelligence, and knowledge. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, it's talking about God creating the world by the power of the Spirit of God. And it says there that these words describe what God does in the work of creation. It's created with wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. So this guy, this contractor guy, this workman is filled with the Spirit to embody the characteristics of God in the original creation. Why is all this going on? What, what is happening here? Well, it gets even better than that. When it says, and all craftsmanship, the fourth descriptor, that's actually the same Hebrew word we find in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, where it says God rested from all His work or all His craftsmanship that He had done in creation. So these four gifts of the Spirit to this contractor guy here are the things that are used to describe God's work in the created order. And God's work in the created order begins by reminding us in chapter 1, verse 2 of Genesis that the Spirit of God is hovering over the creation. And we know that God is at work creating, and it is a work of the Spirit by the Word of God as God creates out of nothing. That's not what's going on here, but this is a reflection of the created order. So in a fallen, sinful world, as God is redeeming a people and bringing them to Himself and establishing that there are a redeemed people that He is going to tabernacle among, that He's going to take up residence with, what we have is a new creation in the midst of a fallen world, a people that are to live differently, a people that are reflect the characteristics of God and what God says we ought to value without before the reality of the fall. They will not do it perfectly, so God has made a system for them to come in His presence through sacrifice and through all of these, this design of this, but make no mistake about it. 
This is to be a distinct people in a fallen world that are going to be a part of ushering in a new creation. Look with me at verse 6. And behold, I have appointed with him Oliab, the son of Ashamach, the of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability. And then it goes on to talk about the furnishings and everything. Well, we don't know if, if he is filled with the Spirit in the same way Beelzeel is. I think probably so. It doesn't make it explicit here, but he is the, uh, he is the assistant contractor on this building project of the tabernacle. Now, one thing that you note when you think about this a little bit farther, the first one, the one it says is filled with the Spirit, he is a part of the tribe of Judah that when they traveled around, his tribe would go first. The other one's of the tribe of Dan, and when they traveled around, his tribe would go last. So here are these probably Spirit-spilled contractors. We know that one is, and they are bookends of the people as they travel around and they are going to be people who keep putting together and taking down this tabernacle that is built to be the house of God among the people to be a symbol of his presence now there's all kinds of things to draw out of this but just a couple of thoughts one is just this is just simply the way God works the division of leadership, the structure that God gives, and He gifts people differently and pulls us together and accomplishes according to His design. A church has pastors and deacons and, and spiritually gifted believers who are doing the work of ministry. And 1 Corinthians 12 reminds us, never should we pit one against the other. I've got news for you. This Beelzeel, whatever, however you actually say his name, God, he's just as important in what's going on here as Moses and Aaron. This is what God is doing. And it also reminds us that the work of God accomplishing His purposes in the world, the way we draw this distinction between sacred and secular, that God is about the business of erasing that false distinction. And whenever, wherever a believer goes, he is going in the sacred responsibility of reflecting and glorifying God. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12, just a few pieces out of it. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers. Now, this is not a situation where a particular person is gifted for a particular project, but the people of God in the context of the new covenant are all indwelt by the Spirit of God. Who has spiritual gifts among believers today? All, everyone. Uh, but, but notice that it says that, that, that now there are varieties of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, he says. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And skipping down to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, it says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free. We are all made to drink of one spirit. Then it tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 18, But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? 
As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. This little narrative in here shows us the spirit filling of a contractor for this project reminds us that all of us have our role. And the beauty of the church where everybody is spiritually gifted means that no matter how hard it is for us to drive it into our heads, there are not really important roles as a member of this body and eh, not so important roles as a member of this body. There's just one thing. All of us are here only by the sovereign grace of God and all of us deserve judgment and we are here to be faithful with what God has entrusted to us. And remember the thing that we have to constantly repent of. We have to constantly repent of thinking that we can decide what really matters. Here's what really matters. God and your life. And the issue is Not what your role is, but the issue is what you do with it. I love Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great English Baptist preacher on this. He says, to a man who lives unto God, nothing is secular. Everything is sacred. He puts on his workday garment. And he uses the imagery here in the the temple, tabernacle temple area to say that in the context of the new covenant, we, we are all priests. To to a man who lives unto God, nothing is secular. Everything is sacred. He puts on his workday garment and it is a vestment to him. He sits down to his meal and it's a sacrament. He goes forth in his labor and he exercises the office of the priesthood. His breath is incense and his life is a sacrifice. He sleeps on the bosom of God and lives and moves in the divine presence. To draw a hard and fast line and say this is sacred and this is secular is to my mind diametrically opposed to the teaching of Christ and the spirit of the gospel. Paul has said, I know I am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. The Lord has cleansed your houses, my brothers and sisters. He has cleansed your bedchambers, your tables, your shops. He has made the bells upon your horses holiness to the Lord. He has made the common pots and pans of your kitchen to be as bowls before the altar if you know what you are and live according to your high calling. You housemaids, you cooks, you nurses, you plowmen, you housewives, you traders, you sailors, your labor is holy if you serve the Lord Christ in it. If by living unto Him as you ought to live, the sacred has absorbed the secular. The overarching temple of the Lord covers all your houses and your fields, my brothers and sisters. This ennobles all of life, and this ensures a reward for all that we do in life. It's a powerful word. But you see clearly the implication here of what's going on in the infilling of this work contractor is that God is working by His Spirit to bring about what is a picture of a new creation that He's going to ultimately bring about. The Bible elsewhere calls it a new heavens and new earth. But until that time, God is working at this time, and there's a tabernacle, and one day it won't be movable, we'll call it the temple, but He's bringing about a new creation in a fallen world by a redeemed people among whom God tabernacles and who live by covenant promise awaiting the Messiah, the ultimate Redeemer. And by the way, that's why you get to the Gospel of John and it starts out in the beginning. 
How does the Genesis start out? In the beginning. Why does it start out in the beginning? Because Christ is coming to usher in a new creation. And if anyone is in Christ, the Bible tells us, He is a new creation. And we are a part of the new creation ultimately that God is ushering in in Christ. And you see, this leads perfectly to the issue in chapter 12, in chapter 31, verses 12 through 17, about Sabbath rest. You see, it makes it so clear that the point of the tabernacle is to image forth in the world a place where God rules and reigns in a fallen world and is a part of representing a new creation. Exodus chapter 12, 31, beginning in verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, this is the seventh in the series of speeches about the making of the tabernacle. There are six and then there is Sabbath, just like at the original creation. Verse 3. And you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, because it's going to be continuing. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. I am the one who is sanctifying you. I am the one making you holy. I am the one who is devoted to you and changing your devotion. Verse 14. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. And then note the warning here. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. And then beginning in verse 15. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day He rested and was refreshed. What's what's going on here? What's What's the purpose of this? The purpose of Sabbath that which reflected God, that after the fall was put in the law of God, and God was ruling Israel directly. Uh, There was a theocracy with its own sets of rules and regulations. God is telling the people, you are not self-sufficient. You know, somebody, sometimes people think they don't, I don't need rest, you know. I just get less and less sleep and less and less sleep. And guess what? Eventually, Their body mocks their foolishness. Every body needs rest. There's a tendency that we have to act in the sight of God like we don't need the rest that He has built into the rhythm of our lives, the one in seven, where we would set other things apart and focus on Him. He tells us here, that is a deadly mistake. That is a problem in your thinking about Him. It's not your ability just simply to organize time we are not self-sufficient that is the message that's built into this command we are a people who know that we are needy for God see Exodus says that all of this is happening that Israel may know him and that they may call other people to know him and there are three components of that that are key so far the first is that they would know him as redeemer the God of the Exodus the one who parted the waters 
The second one is that they would know Him as the God who tabernacles among the people. And the third one is that they, they, they would know Him as a God who gives rest. Just think about the way creation works. God's work in creation, and then there's rest. And God is a God who promises redemption for a people. There's a rhythm to that. It keeps us tethered to God is Creator, God is Lord of history, and our need of redemption, our need of rest, our need of the Gospel. Well, is there a Christian Sabbath? Is the Sabbath lived out the same way exactly as we see it communicated here? Well, I'm okay with the language of Christian Sabbath as long as it's properly explained. One of the things that Jesus did is all of the sort of legal stipulations related to Israel as a theocratic people directly ruled by God change in the terms of His fulfilling the law and, and, and raising up the church, which is around the world. And so Jesus says He's Lord of the Sabbath. You can't pit the Sabbath against Jesus. He's the Lord of it. He is the one who fulfills all the law. He is the one whom we come to and we say, in Him I find rest. He is our gospel rest. But here we are on a Sunday. So what's this? Oh, this rest is not consummated, is it? We know that the early Christians began worshiping on Sunday, celebrating the resurrection of Christ. Somebody says to me, you know, what gives you the authority to change the, the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday? I said, well, I didn't do it. Jesus did. The resurrection. There is a new creation that's birthed, and it's marked by a gathering that the New Testament often refers to as the Lord's Day. As we come as a people who know that we already rest in Christ, but we know that there is a coming day of rest and a new heavens and a new earth where that rest will be consummated in new and profound ways. We live in the already but not of this. Hebrews 4.9 you heard read earlier, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It's saying that that rest is in Christ. And until Christ consummates His kingdom and we live in His direct presence outside of the reality of sin built into our lives is this one in seven rhythm of the Lord's Day where we come here uh, and we come here to actively rest in the Gospel. The one who is the Lord of the Sabbath says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's a Puritan of old named Richard Baxter and he explained the Lord's Day in this way. He said, the Lord's Day is spent in holy preparation for eternity. The Lord's Day, as we gather here, is a taste of heaven on earth. The people gathered together to worship. And what brings us here is not our own preferences and our own identities, but what brings us here is the blood of Christ. Because God has raised up a people, now we look at one another and we say, brother and sister, there is a family here that didn't exist apart from a bloody cross and a resurrected Christ. But now it is a forever family that exists here. And so when we come here to these weekly family reunions in the name of the resurrected Christ, we gather together and we see a picture and it makes us long for the reality because this picture is good and it gives us rest that God has promised us as we gather together and remind all of us that our rest that we need is in Christ. But oh, we look ahead to the coming consummation of that rest where He will... Wipe away every tear and there will be no more pain. 
and no more suffering and no more death. Thank God for this picture. But oh, thank God for the coming reality. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You so much for this portion of Your Word. I thank You that we have the opportunity to come, Lord, and, and seek You, and that You've built such, such rich um, history into the world and give us these pictures that, that teach us about the reality of exactly what we're a part of. And, and Lord, that You are beyond our ability to articulate our rightly ever fully understand You are holy, holy, holy. And yet, Lord, beyond our ability to ever articulate or fully understand, You are Savior. You are gracious. You are merciful. And You have redeemed a people in Your name. Oh Lord, help us to rest. And I pray, Lord, we would order our lives in such a way that the rest that You give us as we gather together would shape the rest of our week. Not that the rest of our week would shape how we come here. Oh Lord, give us that for Your glory and our good. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.